0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic studies, and we chat with its author. In her moving, sophisticated, and analytically groundbreaking new book, Rebuilding Community, Displaced women and the making of a Shia Ismaili Muslim community, Shanila Khoja Mulji recounts and engages critical narratives of displacement and migration to examine the formation of religious communities. A central theme of this book is the idea of an Ismaili ethics of care, as Khoja Mulji documents with meticulous care the powerful manifestations and consequences of everyday life connected with practices ranging from cooking, social-religious counseling, and storytelling. Moving nimbly between different locations, including East Africa, South Asia, and North America, as well as varied theoretical registers dealing with categories of sacred space, the sensorium, and embodied sociality, Rebuilding Community is a delightful text that will interest scholars in multiple fields across the humanities. Here now is my conversation with Professor... Shanila Koja Mulji. Uh, hello, Shanila. Welcome again to the New Books Network. It's a great pleasure uh, to have you again on our show uh, on what is now your third monograph. Uh, it's an absolute delight uh, to talk about it. Uh, just out a wonderful uh, study, um, and I'm really excited to uh, talk to you about this conversation. Uh, uh-huh. have this conversation. Thank you. Uh, so I thought, uh, you know, one way to uh, begin the conversation for our listeners, uh, uh, the book begins, of course, with this very interesting vignette that I will not disclose because it's so interesting and really grips the reader. Uh, uh, but I was wondering, uh, as a way to start the conversation, how did you think about writing this book? Could you share a bit the, the, the story behind you uh, eventually writing this book?
0: Thank you so much, uh, Professor Terrain, for having me and for, uh, for engaging with this book. Um, this project actually was inspired uh, by my grandmother. So in 1971, uh, my grandmother, along with my mother, who was 12 years old at the time, um, they had to flee East Pakistan, which is now Bangladesh, due to the Civil War. Um, and my grandmother was quite poor at the time. She used to... Um, work as a cook at a restaurant. Um, By 1971, she was already a widow and had uh, to care for five young children, as well as her own husband's sort of family. Um, And so... Living in that sort of sheer ultra poverty, um, as you can imagine, the war further kind of jolted this family, Um, and so they fled. Dhaka arrived in Karachi, um, and upon landing, uh, members of the Shia Ismaili Muslim community um, they really came for um, their help, and um, their help and support was so salient that growing up, I would hear about those stories. Um, So I would hear from my mother how they were taken to a refugee camp at a Jamatkhana which is in a smiley uh, space of worship and gathering they were given food there. They were given fl- clothing there. They stayed there for several weeks. Um, and then there was a, a volunteer committee that was set up that helped my uh, grandmother find housing. Um, they paid her rent um, for over a year until um, she found work and was a little bit more settled. Um, they also enrolled my mother in an Ismaili-run boarding school, and they paid her tuition fees. Um, and so there, was, there were so many stories that I grew up with um, learning about how the Ismaili Jamaat of Karachi and other women in particular had supported um, my grandmother and my mother um, in the sort of immediate aftermath of displacement. And so... Um, As I was thinking about this project, I have always, of course, remained haunted by the fact that the lives of these women, um, like my grandmother, but also the women who um, supported other displaced women um, and helped kind of reforge community after displacement, like these lives and these stories would disappear if we don't record them. Um, and enter them into national or even religious histories. Um, And so it was this potential loss um, that inspired me to to focus on uh, on these sort of cohorts, um, to highlight the work that displaced people have done themselves in order to rebuild their communities. Um, Because as you know, a lot of work on refugees and displacement focuses on the relationship between states and the resources the state provides to um, displaced people or the contractual obligations that refugees have in relation to states. Um, But we know very little about this sort of ordinary care work that displaced people or these religious communities have undertaken. Um, And so that was a sort of broader context um, that inspired me.
1: So I thought uh, perhaps as the first uh, question to dive into the book, it might be useful for our listeners to learn a little more about uh, your interlocutors and the people on whose stories this book focuses on. Uh, I mean, there are a number of different kinds of interlocutors who come up over the course of this book, but if you could give a general overview of the people on whom this book focuses. And then the other thing, uh, perhaps also a general broad question, uh, what are the uh, sort of the primary argument or set of arguments that anchor this project.
0: Um, so, I interviewed over um, 90 Ismaili Muslims who fled either East Pakistan or East Africa in the 1970s due to civil war and expulsion. So, we know that in the 1970s, Idi Amin expelled Asians from Uganda, but there was also uh, a general sort of anti Asian sentiment within East Africa. And so, um, these are the cohorts that, that fled around the same time, and then they made their way to North America. Um, and to UK as well, and some state in West Pakistan. And so I interviewed um, the cohort that uh, that fled around the t- same time and then met again, uh, primarily in North America. But even though um, they were sort of separated by these thousands of miles of land and sea, um, they share ethnicity and religious traditions. They are um, Shia Ismaili Muslims, who are, as you know, a historical religious minority. Um, the Shia... Upon the death of Prophet Muhammad, he sided with his son in law Ali ibn Abi Talib as the rightful leader of the community. Um, And then over time, the Shia also um, split up into further groups, and I follow the Nizari Ismaili group of Shias. Um, And so, even though um, the group was separated, they traced their ancestors to the Sindh Gujarat region, and so. They share ethnicity, they share religious tradition. Um, Their parents, for instance, also had been displaced. And so if we go back in time, um, in the late 19th century, Due to epidemics and famines, many community members from the Gujarat region, um, they had to migrate within India. And then um, some also went to Gulf and the Swahili coast. And then during partition, many families, such as Mainani's family, they relocated again to escape the violence and headed to East East Pakistan. And so by 1970s, you have these substantial um, uh, populations in East Pakistan and East Africa who then flee again. And so those were um, the cohorts that I followed. Um, I asked them about their lives. Initially, it was an oral history project, so I was just interested in learning about their lives, the memories they have of their mothers and grandparents. Um, And then over time, um, it became clear to me the very important role that they have played in maintaining religious sociality across generations and across continents. And so... In terms of the questions um, that anchor the book, I wanted to broadly find out how do people survive dislocations? Um, How do they remake their spiritual, um, their social life worlds? Um, I was particularly interested in finding more about women. So what types of material, cultural and emotional work do women in particular undertake? Um, to regenerate a sense of self and community, um, and then broadly thinking about what can this examination of women's activities um, teach us about religion uh, after displacement uh, in the sense of religious, the formation of religious communities and also about lived ethics.
1: So one of the key categories that one finds uh, that is a thread really that binds uh, the chapters of this book Uh, is this whole idea of uh, an ethics of care or an Ismaili ethics of care. Um, uh, Since it's such a central category idea in the book, could you talk a little more about both of this idea as an analytical uh, concept and uh, what work it does in the project and what work it does for the interlocutors who sustain this project?
0: Yes. Um, and so um, in the book, I trace a range of activities um, that smiley women undertook. Um, and the activities are um, fairly sort of um, mundane. So thinking about cooking for congregants, cleaning the Jamaat Khanas, um, packing lunch for a traveler, helping a family find housing, um, telling stories of miracles to pass on spiritual knowledge, Um, And so there were these range of activities that would be constituted as not only creating sort of physical infrastructure um, in the aftermath of displacement, um, but also producing these emotional and spiritual connection among people. And so in the book, then I wanted to extend our understanding of what placemaking um, after displacement looks like um, by including some of these ordinary acts of care that sustain connection between people and two ideas. And that's one of the ways in which I understood how religious communities can be made in the here and now, but also symbolically. Um, but as I was doing this work, um, many of the women that I spoke with um, would, um, would speak about how they were inspired to do this work because of the firmans of their imam, the spiritual leader. Um, so the, the present imam and the past, immediately past imam. Um, They have emphasized brotherhood and unity in the community. They call on community members to be generous, um, to support the weakest member um, of the Jamaat. And so these sets of ethics, these ideas around unity, brotherhood, support, kindness and care, they circulate in the community in addition to um, ethical norms that Ismailis derive from their understanding of the Quran. So, for example, thinking about the notion of tawhid, women would repeatedly speak about how um, tawhid in the sense of oneness of God, but also a commonality of humanity, um, and as well as um, ethics de- derive from ginan's which are devotional literatures of Ismaili, Indic-origin Ismailis. Um, and so as I was thinking about um, some of these Um, explanations that women would provide to me about um, the kinds of practices that they have undertaken, um, I wanted to think about them as informing um, or giving us insights into what religion looks like in the everyday. And so in addition to prayers, which are often the focus of studies on Muslim piety, we see these women enacting their faith through these mundane reproductive activities, and they're trying to figure out what their deen or faith is, um, while also trying to express it to some of these activities. Um, and so, so so those are modes that or moments that I theorize as um, an Ismaili sort of ethics of care. And I was informed by feminist theorizing on ethics of care, but, um, but I wanted to look to the zone of religion um, to find additional sort of morally compelling pathways to care. Um, and that's where this sort of idea around Ismailis um, emphasizing some of these guidance, moral guidance, and comes from the imam, um, where these were important aspects for me to consider.
1: Yep. So uh, the two key sites, as you just mentioned, Shanila, that animate your project uh, are, of course, um, the East African context and uh, uh, what was then East Pakistan as well. And you see the migration or uh, displacement of uh, Smiley women in these two contexts. And one of the key... Uh, ideas that you look at, and this in some ways perhaps even connects this book to your earlier work as well, is that you trace the childhoods of the women you interviewed uh, in East Africa and East Pakistan uh, uh, to give a description of the, uh, you know, uh, what you uh, frame as the smiley worlds in these two uh, regions. Um, uh, could you talk a bit about this whole idea of the smiley world uh, and how uh, your examination of these uh, childhoods of these women uh, uh feed into this whole concept of Ismaili world that you that you examine and that you provide such a detailed description of?
0: Hmm. Thank you for the question. So um, so one of the things I wanted to emphasize um, um, through these explanations of Ismaili life worlds in these two regions was to um, show how women um, were active participants in creating Um, the jamaat or religious communities in these parts of the world. Um, And so um, in general, we have very little knowledge about ordinary Ismailis and in particular um, contemporary Ismailis, but um, whatever information we do have is in relation to um, uh, elite men who have uh, migrated and the the ways in which they supported community. Um, We know very little about women's perspectives. And so I wanted to tell the story of Ismaili migration and Ismaili settlement in these two regions by looking at how women reinforced communal affinities while they were cultivating their own um, ethical sensibilities. And so um, in the chapter, for example, we encounter women like Miti Bhai Premji of Mombasa, Taj Bibi Abu Alis of Dar es Salaam. Um, these are women who, were in, who lived in larger towns, and so they took in borders from smaller towns So they could attend school. And in doing so, they were also attending to the firman of their imam who had emphasized girls education since the beginning of the 20th century. We meet people um, like um, Sherban um, who kept one box for religious dues and another one for household expenditures so that religious dues don't get mixed up with that, the money that's available to buy soap, for example. Um, we learn about women who, um, who grappled with the ferments of their imam when he asked them to drop the face veil. And so all of these insights into women's intimate lives, um, their hardships, but also the support um, that they offer to other community members, as well as the ways in which they themselves were trying to understand what it means to, um, to practice Ismaili ethics in a certain sort of context. All of these are ways in which I wanted to enhance our understanding of what um, the Ismaili Jamaat looked like um, in, these, um, in these earlier time periods in these two different regions. Um, and and in, the, in the chapter, I also talk about how um, there is a way in which um, the ways in which Ismailis interacted with other populations, too, um, the ways in which they were structured um, by colonial policies in the sense that people lived in segregated spaces um, and there were rare opportunities to form solidarities. And yet there were ways in which there's was antagonism and, and solidarities that were established between these communities. Um, and so looking at women's worlds, intimately, but also then situating them within a larger sort of colonial structure um, in both of these contexts as well.
1: Now, if an Ismaili ethics of care or Ismaili words are key conceptual ideas in the book, and very important site that comes up repeatedly in the different chapters, of course, is the the Jamaat Khana or Ismaili side of worship. And um, uh, there, what I found particularly fascinating is the idea that beyond just a sacred space, there is a certain kind of uh, uh, cultivation of the senses or the sensorium. Uh, uh, that's key to your argument that the Jamaat Khan, in fact, is a sp- uh, space of the sensorium that is also mobile. Uh, so could you talk us about this very important theoretical uh, element of your uh, book, which is to look at the Jamaat Khana and sacred spaces more broadly as sites of sensorium, as uh, uh, and importantly mobile sites of sensorium.
0: Yes, thank you. Um, so when we think about displaced communities, um, there's a lot of literature that speaks to us about how um, recreating sacred spaces, physical sort of infrastructure um, is really important for displaced people to uh, nurture a sense of belonging in new sites. Um, And of course, we also know that religious sites um, or religious spaces of worship in the context of displacement, they are not simply sites for prayer, but they're also um, important hubs that kind of bring people together and people are able to access important social services through those sites as well. And so in the book, I look at um, Jamaat Khanas as those sites, and I talk about how Um, These ideas about Jamaat Khanas as being important spaces for bringing Ismailis together. Um, It it, it is, um, these are spaces, Jamaat Khanas have sustained communities, not only in East Africa, but also in North America. And I write about the contribution of women um, who created such makeshift Jamaat Khanas at their apartments um, and the support they provided to um, these early communities. Um, but then as I was doing this um, research, I also encountered Ismailis um, who strived to conjure uh, a sensorium of the Jamaat in the most unexpected of places. So I interviewed women who were um, on a steamboat um, leaving Chittagong for Karachi. Um, and they tell me about how as a community um, of primarily women and children, because a lot of men had left. Um, men, first of all, couldn't get into some of these steamboats because they were so crowded, and then they had stayed behind to try to sell some of their um, some of their household expenditures and like businesses, so they could get some capital. Um, But the women tell me of how they recited ginans on the steamboats, how they recited dua. They tell me of how there were a couple of itinerant preachers who were on the steamboat and they started doing religious education classes. Um, And imagine the kind of continuity those religious education classes on board a steamer might provide to um, the the, the, the community that's on that steamer. Um, And then I encountered uh, an Ismaili woman um, who tells me about being at a transit camp in Italy um, and how they reserved a sort of tiny space for Jamaat and they would meet there in the mornings and in the evenings and how she was responsible for um, waking up people in the morning so they could do their ibadat and so I started to think about how um, when we think about uh, sacred spaces, there is a sensorium that a collective of practitioners, a collective of jamaat can invoke through the ganans, through burning incense, through the dua, through a collective sort of um, prostration. Um, and so that's one of the one of the ways in which I then start, started theorizing this sort of um, the sacred sensorium as mobile and, and the fact that in these two sites, at very precarious moments, Ismailis were able to conjure uh, the sensorium of Jamaat Khana through these recitations. Um, and one of my interlocutors, for example, repeatedly said, it felt like a Jamaat Khana. And so that was the indication where um, where I started to think about feeling and senses and how that sensorium can be portable.
1: Now Another aspect of this book which is very productive and that I found uh, to be key to the argument uh, and the texture of this book is that the focus on the everyday as a site of religious sociality, which, of course, is a key category of the book, which also comes up in the title. Um, And there, of course, uh, you talk about things ranging from cooking and food you've already mentioned, but there is a a whole chapter, chapter five, on that uh, theme and the whole way in which miracle stories are told. So could you talk a bit about these practices of everyday life, miracle stories, food, cooking? How are they connected... uh, with this whole idea of the cultivation of religious sociality. This basically is combining uh, chapters four and five, which are about the relationship between everyday life and religious sociality, if I could frame it that way. Talk a bit about this key thread and theme of of the book.
0: Yes. um, And so I I saw both the storytelling um, and food preparation as activities through which um, my interlocutors, they tried to reproduce Ismaili culture while they were also participating in the religious formation of others. Um, and so, for example, my interlocutors told me about um, the time when, um, when riots had broken out in Dhaka, Um, And a lot of them who were still in Dhaka, they decided that instead of staying isolated in their homes, they should go in um, and stay um, in the Jamaat Khanna. And so one person, Shamsuddin, for example, tells me that um, uh, they stayed in the Jamaat Khanna for 29 days. They were eating, sleeping and praying together. Um, And since he was a young man, he was assigned the responsibility of being the gatekeeper. Um, one day, uh, some, of these, um, some of these other sort of uh, men came and told Shamsuddin that you are next. So in the sense that um, it's their turn the following day. Um, the Jamaat, you know, sheltered in fear that morning, uh, that, that sort of evening. They even performed the final rites for all of the Jamaati members. And so the final funeral rites were performed um, the night before because people were so certain of their impending deaths. But the next day, um, these uh, the same men who had threatened Shamsuddin the day earlier, they came back and they said that we couldn't um, enter your Jamaat Khanna because your imam was standing with a guard stick, a danda, and guarding the door. Or your imam was on a white horse circling the Jamaat Khanna and he wouldn't let us in. And so... Basically, this is for Shamsuddin. This was a miracle in the sense that the entire Jamaat was spared. Um, and he tells me that they were able to then flee the next day um, and made it to Karachi safely. And so, I I think about such stories of miracles, Um, and so here you have the imam who is breaching the zahir or the apparent dimension and saving his followers, Um, but there were all these other stories of miracles where where women would tell me, for example, of strangers who helped them during their early years in America, providing them with jobs or providing them with these opportunities, or even um, a, a sort of discount on a car, and how they would receive these as miracles and as indications of God's and imams' protective care. Um, And so these stories, when they're told in community settings, become a way for the teller to, of course, make sense of a traumatic um, experience from the past, but they also shape the future spiritual state of the Jamaat and they act as a way in which um, the teller participates in the religious formation of the listener as well. And so in that chapter, I examine these um, in these stories as a way that reproduce um, faith in imam, uh, in the imam, the Shi'i belief that the imam can intercede with God. And so these become moments of reproducing uh, the religious sociality. Um, and then food part, uh, Food also is another dimension um, that I think with um, food, of course, uh, enabled Ismaili women to, Um, to write about community histories and to write about um, the multiple sort of uh, migrations across continents that Ismailis have undertaken. And so um, in that chapter, I look at three cookbooks in particular. I write about how the authors uh, embed the stories of their communities in specific food items, um, but also how they use food um, to share their imam's advice on nutrition. So for example... My uh, my grandmother used to tell me that she doesn't use red chilies because the previous imam said not to use them. And so my mother doesn't use red chilies as well. Um, Lots of my my interlocutors explained um, their choices for um, ingredients in food by reference to the imam's advice on nutrition. And so this mundane activity of food preparation becomes a way in which Ismailis preserve the migration histories of their people um, but they're also able to teach other generations about heritage food items, about the advice uh, of the imam, about foods that might be um, cooked in a certain way in relig- at religious festivals. Um, and so they become this sort of another mode of cultural reproduction of the Ismaili Jamaat.
1: And the other very impressive thing about this book, of course, is that in addition to moving from different theoretical registers, including everyday life, sociality, the question of the sacred space as a site of sensorium, uh, it also moves uh, uh, between different uh, geographical sites. And not only those that we've talked about so far, including East Africa, East Pakistan, South Asia more broadly, but you also talk about uh, second generation Ismailis in America, which is the focus of Chapter 6. Uh, and then, of course, the key theme which you've already touched on a few times here is the intergenerational transfer of narratives, religious identity, et cetera. Uh, so talk, tell us a bit about that uh, uh, context and how uh, this new generation that you talk, the second generation rather I should say uh, that you that you mentioned, interacts with the migrant generation, this whole relationship between the migrant generation and the second generation, and how does that enter into this whole question of community building?
0: Yes, um, and so I, um, I interviewed um, some, um, some second-generation women who are primarily the daughters of my primary interlocutors because I wanted to see the transmutation of community-making practices um, and I wanted to see how they understand um, their, um, their parents or their ancestors' pasts, but also how they are fashioning community in America, uh, where they are, this is their home. They don't have memories of India or East Africa, um, from that perspective. And so, um, I focused on uh, I focused on the kind of cultural productions um, that second generation are producing. Um, so, how they interrogate and also celebrate a shared history in novels, artwork, and dissertations, for example. Um, having grown up in North, in North America, this generation um, articulates an Ismaili ethics of care that uh, that intersects with locally manifest concerns. So a lot of my interlocutors, for example, would speak about anti-Brown and anti-Black racism. Um, they engage in a critique of settler colonialism and the modern minority paradigm um, and articulated these stances as emerging from a reflection on Alid ethics, on Shia ethics. And so... They are thinking about how to produce spiritual intimacies in America by by working on what it means for them to um, reproduce this Ismaili sociality in relation to the issues that are manifest in their own environment. Um, I also um, noticed, um, because of this sort of thinking about intergenerationally, I noticed how religious sociality in a way is contingent um, and it's remade by each generation. And so... Even though I focus on specific cohorts of women, um, we can look at these multiple cohorts and, sh- and see a sort of shared um, spaces and shared sentiments, but also look at how Ismailis create new, so new sites and new forms through which to reproduce community.
1: Um, so, Shanila, as we close our conversation on this book, and then I would love to learn more about, um, and I'm sure our listeners will also about your next project, but um, to go beyond the individual chapters, and you've so beautifully really uh, summarized, analyzed, and presented key findings of different chapters, but if one we were to take a step back and think about the intervention that you see this book making, or the take-home point that you would like Listeners to come away, uh, come away with, in relation to its contribution to the study of, uh, you know, general studies, religious studies, anthropology, so many different fields, South Asian studies that it intervenes. And in. what would be a couple of major take-home points, conceptual otherwise, that you would like listeners, uh, readers to uh, come away with after reading this book? What do you see as a couple of major interventions that are very close to you and dear to you that you would want listeners to, or readers uh, to, to, to take away from this book?
0: So I would say that um, I had three um, hopes in mind for this book. So the first is, of course, we know that when the history of Ismailis is written, um, it's often from the perspective of the imams, the missionaries, or elite men. Um, And so while these histories, they're really important, they have accomplished um, very important tasks of clarifying the sort of broad sequence of events defining Ismaili history. I'm hoping that this book adds new dimensions to our understanding of Ismaili um, Ismaili history, modern Ismaili history through a partial reconstruction of Ismaili women's lives. The second area um, I wanted to focus on is in relation to how we think about women's care practices. So um, Ismaili women's placemaking activities in the book, um, as, as you know, um, they take form of these reproductive tasks. Um, women are cleaning, they're cooking, they're washing. Um, and even though such work is necessary for the propagation of society, um, it's frequently viewed as women's um, property and women's biology. And so therefore, it's it's largely sort of undervalued. And that's one reason why... Marxist feminists um, often regard housework as a paradigmatic site for gendered exploitation. Um, They have strived to move housework into the realm of wage labor in order to increase its value. But in the book, I argue that I I think instead of reducing women's work to productivist logics, I am striving to mobilize a different logic altogether. I want for us to um, see women's reproductive activities, the mighty women's work, as producing relationality and sociability. Um, it repairs past trauma. Um, as we already saw in this talk, it, it functions as a means of, sp- of harnessing spirituality, uh, of fashioning intergenerational continuity. And so the challenge for me in, in this book has been to emphasize the salience of women's care work. Um, and of course, those who undertake it while also pointing out that there are certain scenarios and circumstances when it becomes a site of exploitation. And then finally, um, I wanted to emphasize the role of religion in migrant and refugee placemaking because that remains underexplored. Um, And often, if we think about it in relation to Muslim refugees, um, Islam is often mobilized um, to demonize them further, right? And so here in the book, you will see a different side of Islam. Um, You see an Islam that offers resources to women um, to not only find solace and comfort during a difficult time, but it's also a code of conduct that helps them to suture their lives and communities back together. Um, And in this respect, um, I also um, wanted to specifically note how um, there is an ordinariness and ongoingness um, to women's ethical conduct, which extends sort of beyond the current analyses of Muslim charity and religiosity, um, which, as we know, Amira Mittermeier has talked about. They're dominated by the hegemonic paradigm of self-cultivation. Um, in the book, we see Ismailis um, engaging with their deen or their faith um, by working on themselves, but also working intersubjectively to create community. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to emphasize here was that, of course, we can find um, such modes of religious intersubjectivity in other Muslim communities, other religious groups, too. But within Ismailis, the imam acts as a centripetal force. And so that's what gives this particular community a distinct route to ethical action. And so broadly, when I identify um, an Ismaili ethics of care in the book, um, I'm not arguing that um, this uh, community's particular understanding of spiritual obligation is distinct from other modes of care that other might develop in other communities. Um, what I'm arguing is that um, there is a specific route to ethical action in this Shi'i community, um, and the book offers um, an examination of one manner – of living a Muslim life. Um, And I'm hoping that other scholars who study other communities, um, they may identify both points of commonality as well as difference.
1: So as we're coming to the end of our conversation, Shanila, could you share with our listeners a bit what you're planning on as your next project? uh,
0: (laughs) Yes, thank you. Um, So I am working on a short book about uh, Muslim boyhood. Um, and um, in the book, I consider how um, racialization of younger Muslims, it both overlaps with but also departs from um, the racialization of adults. Um, and so I'm thinking in particular about how Muslim boys are um, displaced ideologically from the space of innocence um, and how they are produced as figures of threat and um, but I'm also uh, thinking a little bit closely about the intersection of race and capital. Um, and so they're, uh, I'm focusing on how detention centers um, and, and prisons, even, um, uh, even like temporary de- detention facilities function as enclosures, um, as well as looking at commodification of Muslim boys. Um, and so this uh, book, inshallah, um, is a short book, inshallah, it'll come out um, next year.
1: Rebuilding Community, Displaced Women, and the Making of a Shia Ismaili Muslim Community by Professor Shanila Khojamulji, published by Oxford University Press in 2023. Uh, Thank you so much, Shanila. Always a pleasure talking to you. And uh, congratulations on this wonderful uh, new book. Um, And uh, thank you for taking out the time to share your insights about this book uh, on new books in Islamic studies.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So this was my conversation with Professor Shanila Mulji. Oh, I hope you enjoyed this episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network, which is NBN. I hope you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.